Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. So good to have you here. And uh, we're in a new series. Last week, we started a series called Your Kingdom Come. We talked about the purpose of the Kingdom of God is to bring heaven to earth. We talked about how the Gospel of the Kingdom is different to other ideas of the Gospel and that we need to understand as Christians and followers of Christ who are citizens in the Kingdom, what the Kingdom of God actually is. The Kingdom of God is wherever the King is and wherever His will is in full effect. And so the Kingdom of God is not a place but a realm in which God rules and reigns. And our mission as a church is to advance God's kingdom across the nations. If we're going to fulfil that, then we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. And a lot of people have attended, may have attended church, may have read some of the Bible and seen uh, references to the kingdom, but not really understand what the kingdom of God is. And so for five Sundays, I'll be preaching every week about the Kingdom of God and leading into next year, wanting us to really understand it, grasp it, live in it and carry the values of the Kingdom of God into 2021. And so today I'm going to uh, head into the second uh, message in this series. I'm going to talk about the pathway to. Once you understand the purpose of the Kingdom, you need to understand what's the road to the Kingdom, what's the pathway to. And so let's uh, pray together and we're going to get into this Word. Father, we just thank You so much, Lord, for Your goodness and Your grace that is at work in our lives. We thank You, Lord, that Your grace is sufficient for us Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And there have been many moments this year where we felt vulnerable, broken, uh, maybe a little weak, and yet You have sustained us and You have strengthened us. And I'm praying right now, Holy Spirit, that You would come, You would take this Word, You would apply it to our hearts, give us ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying to us as a church and to us individually. I pray, help us to open our thinking to get a worldview of the Kingdom of God that helps us to be able to live on purpose and and Lord, that we would see Your Kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I pray in Jesus' Name. And everyone said, Amen. I wanna invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. The richest sermon that Jesus ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, many of us may have heard of this and understand different aspects of it. Well, Jesus highlights eight Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. The last Beatitude is repeated twice. And so there's only eight there. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about what is the pathway to the kingdom of God. Over 25 years ago, uh, I went on a hike through the Yarra Ranges about 20 kilometres and at the 15 kilometre mark, the people that I was hiking with were well experienced, had a map, had a compass. Uh, they knew what they were about. We actually wandered off the path, off the grid. And for about an hour and a half, we ended up getting lost. 
And uh, I didn't know that we were lost during that hour and a half, but I knew we were lost when the experienced bush hiker said, I, unfortunately, I have no idea where we are. We've been wandering around in circles for the last hour and a half. I think we need to pray. And uh, I said, that's a brilliant idea if we're lost. And so we began to pray thunder and lightning and drop bears and, and lions and stuff were all coming to attack us. And so I was like, hey, let's pray. So we began to pray and within 10 minutes of that prayer, thankfully, we found our way back to where we needed to be and were able to complete the hike. And uh, I began to think about that experience and how many believers get lost in life because they wander off the path of the Kingdom of God. And not only that, but some people are lost because they never find the path of the Kingdom of God. And if you don't know that there is a pathway to the Kingdom of God and what actually is the entry point or doorway into the Kingdom of God, you'll never find it. If you don't prioritise the Kingdom of God, you'll wander off the path. And yet the Word of the Lord tells us in Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and Your Word is a light unto my path. There is something about the Word of God that reorientates us, that illuminates us to the truth of where we need to be. Now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the first and greatest body of teaching on life in the Kingdom of God. It gives us illustrations and word pictures, metaphors, ideas of what life in the Kingdom actually is. And Jesus begins His sermon by highlighting eight Beatitudes. And each of these Beatitudes begin with a blessing. Jesus says, blessed are they, and then follows of what a life of blessing actually looks like in the Kingdom of God. Now you need to understand something about this word blessing. When Jesus uses that word, often when we look at that word from a Western context, an individualistic worldview, we tend to interpret blessing as a temporary circumstance or feeling of happiness where bank account is full, promotions are on our knocking on our door, relation, relational world is all fixed up and worked out and everything is going fine and rosy. But actually when Jesus talks about blessing, He brings with it a different, a kingdom perspective on blessing. The idea of blessing here in the Beatitudes is a state of well-being that is only accessible in your relationship with God. It's only accessible for those who belong to the Kingdom of God. And so when we live in the blessing of these Beatitudes, we're actually living the Kingdom life. And we know that life in the Kingdom is the theme of the Beatitudes because the first Beatitude begins with a focus on the Kingdom of Heaven. And the last Beatitude, the eighth one, also brings into focus the Kingdom of Heaven. And what Jesus does in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is He actually unpacks and expounds, so to speak, through illustration and teaching each of these eight Beatitudes. And He unpacks what each of these mean. You may have heard messages or sermons on the Sermon on the Mount and different parts of it, and it's very compartmentalised and segmented. But in fact, the Sermon on the Mount is one sermon that unpacks and reflects each of these eight Beatitudes. And so the first Beatitude is what we're focused on today. Jesus defines where the pathway to the Kingdom of God begins. And it begins with humility. 
Humility is the pathway to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some of you would have heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a program that's designed to help people struggling and wrestling with the addiction to alcohol to get free of it and live a sober life. Well, the success of AA is actually attributed to 12 steps that all participants must agree to if they're going to be a part of that program in order to help them get victory. And the first step of AA is a requirement to admit that you are powerless over this substance, over alcohol, and that life has actually become unmanageable on your own terms and that you need outside help to actually help you gain victory in this area of your life. It sort of sounds a little bit like acknowledging that there is a poverty of spirit and without the help of God, I cannot actually get the freedom and the victory that I need. You need to understand that success in the Kingdom of Heaven belongs to those who confess their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their absolute need and dependence upon the Spirit of God to make it in life. You see, to be poor in spirit is to recognise John 15, 5, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And until you and I recognise our need for God, the Kingdom of Heaven is shut off to every single one of us. Jesus addresses what the posture of someone who is poor in spirit actually is. He talks about the nature, the attitude, the focus of someone who is walking in true humility. In Matthew 7, 7, he unpacks what someone who is poor in spirit actually looks like. And he says, Ask and you shall receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and everyone who knocks on the door, it will be open to you. Now that passage of Scripture has often been preached when it comes to prayer, that this is a form of prayer and a way of praying. And whilst elements of that teaching is relevant to the application of prayer, that's not actually what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about that this is the posture of someone who is poor in spirit. They ask for the Kingdom of God. And if you ask for the Kingdom, Jesus says, you'll receive it. If you seek after the Kingdom of God, Jesus says, you will find it. And if the door of the Kingdom is closed to you, Jesus says, if you knock on that door in faith, that door of the Kingdom will be open to every single one of us. This is what it means. This is the blessing of what it means to live with humility. God opens His Kingdom to humble people. Corrie ten Boom was a writer and a speaker and quite famous of the 20th century and she survived the Second World War. And she travelled the world speaking and sharing her books and a reporter asked her, how do you stay humble? And she said, oh, that's easy. She said, when Jesus Christ was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey 
And all of the crowd were waving palm branches, singing Hosanna in the highest and, and laying cloaks on the ground for the donkey to ride over. And all of that worship and glory and praise was going towards Jesus. Do you think it entered into the mind of that donkey for one moment that all of that praise and worship was for the donkey? She said, of course not. She said, all I am is a donkey that Jesus Christ can ride in His glory upon. And I think that when we begin to think that the world revolves around us, what happens is pride poisons our heart and we start to live with a spirit of entitlement and we don't realise that the Kingdom of Heaven is actually shut off to a prideful heart. This is why the Pharisees, who were often the butt of Jesus' many rebukes and uh, corrections, the Pharisees actually were spectators of the coming of the Kingdom. When Jesus announced, repent for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand, they were spectators. They watched Jesus' triumphant entry. They weren't participators in the Kingdom because they thought they knew better than Jesus and their pride wouldn't let them acknowledge their own poverty of spirit. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43, the Kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that is producing its fruit. And the fruit that Jesus was talking about here, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is actual humility. You see, humility and childlike faith go hand in hand. In Matthew chapter 18, verse one to four, the disciples asked Jesus, Who is the greatest in the Kingdom of Heaven? And Jesus highlighted and pointed to a little child and said, unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the Kingdom of Heaven. Whoever humbles himself, Jesus says, like this child is the greatest in the Kingdom of Heaven. You know, we tend to misinterpret greatness through the filter of success and achievement and accomplishment and status. And so the kingdom of this world measures greatness through the ideas of he who has the most is great, he who wins the most is great, he who achieves the most is great. And we have a very broken, fallen idea of what greatness is. But you need to understand something about the kingdom of God. It's an upside down kingdom. Jesus said to Pilate, who was a person of accomplishment, wealth and status, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So if the kingdom of God is not of the kingdom of this world, then we need to understand the value system of the kingdom of God. It is an upside down kingdom. In the kingdom of God, humility comes before promotion. Giving comes before receiving. Serving comes before greatness. Dying comes before living. This is what the Kingdom of God is. In the Kingdom of God, you descend into greatness. You don't ascend into greatness. And so where Lucifer said, I will be like God. I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. He tried to ascend into greatness. And the Bible says he was thrown down to Sheol. 
The same thing happens in Jesus' ministry, but in reverse. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the Bible says that Jesus has now seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, I am now seated with Him in heavenly places, sharing the same victory that Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so you need to understand that in the kingdom of this world, you can still be rewarded and ignore these values of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of this world operates with a very different pattern, very different spirit, very different principles. And you can still be seen to be first in this life But Jesus issues a warning, everyone who is first in this kingdom will be last in the next kingdom. And everyone who is last in the kingdom of this world will be first in the kingdom of God. Why? Because God measures greatness very differently to how we measure greatness. You see, when Jesus was asked who is the greatest, He points to a child. What is it about a child that attracts the favour of heaven? A child has total trust and vulnerability and dependence towards their parent or guardian or authority figure. A child has an inability to advance their own cause apart from help, direction and resource of their parent. And so one of the greatest joys of being a parent with three kids and anyone who's a a father or mother knows the, the power of this. One of the greatest joys is having one of your kids come up to you and ask you for help for something. Some parents can see that as a nuisance. Don't annoy me, figure it out. But actually it's a privilege and a joy because I've learned that children will stop asking for help for only one of two reasons. The first reason they may stop asking for help is because you've taught them well, they've matured, you've discipled them and so they actually know what to do now. And as a person matures and becomes more independent, it's a good thing when they can feed themselves. It's a good thing when they can dress themselves. It's a good thing when they can manage the kingdom of their room and keep it tidy, hint, hint, kids. It's a good thing when, when, when kids can learn and mature and grow to actually take stewardship and responsibility of what they've been entrusted with. But there is a second reason why a child will stop asking a parent for help. It's because they've decided they know better than mum and dad and pride now is in their heart. And we know often how that turns out, pear-shaped. And so in exasperation, the child will come in frustration and anger to the parent and say, you know what, I actually need your help. The same idea is in the Kingdom of God. When we stop coming to Jesus in childlike faith, asking Him for His Spirit to help us, for His Word to guide us in the decisions of our life, in the trajectory of our lives, it's because we have decided somewhere in the pridefulness of our own hearts that we know better than God. And before Jesus ascended to heaven, There was all these sorts of ideas of what the Kingdom of God was. And Peter in Acts chapter 1 comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, will you restore the Kingdom at this time? 
And when Peter was talking about the kingdom of God, he had a traditional Jewish view of the kingdom where the kingdom of God was filled with King Solomon's wealth and King David's military might and that the kingdom of God, when it comes, would overthrow Israel's enemies, being uh, Rome, who was occupying Israel at that time. And Jesus answered, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But Jesus came to bring a different idea and a different worldview of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is reflected in what I call basin theology. You see, when Pilate, the Roman governor uh, in Jerusalem, had the chance to acquit Jesus, had the chance to actually set Jesus free from his accusers, Pilate asked for a basin of water and he washed his hands clean of the responsibility that he had to uphold the law and set an innocent man free. And yet when Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was going back to heaven and knew that He had received all power from His heavenly Father and that all things had been put into His hands, Jesus called also, for a basin of water. And He went and He served His disciples in a spirit of humility, with a poverty of spirit that came to serve and He washed the disciples' feet. And Peter, who got offended at this, is like, you shall never wash my feet because only the most humble, lowliest of servant would ever do such a thing. And yet Jesus responded to Peter and said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no power of me. And in that moment, for all of Peter's issues and foot in mouth disease and mistakes and denial of Jesus before the cross, his poverty of spirit came up and he said, well, not just my feet, but my head and my body also. And it's the reason why all the mistakes that Peter made, heaven was attracted to Peter. Why? Because he demonstrated a poverty of spirit a humility of heart that was utterly dependent upon God for his very life. You see, humility and childlike faith go hand in hand. And to be poor in spirit actually recognises the need to be born again, born anew. You see, it's spiritual birth that is the doorway into the Kingdom of God. Jesus said it like this in John 3, 3 to one of the great teachers of Israel, Nicodemus. Jesus says, unless one is born again, you cannot see and you cannot enter the Kingdom of God. It's so good that we get to meet together and worship together and attend church together. It's been a very difficult year for all of us. But I just want to make sure that you understand that you can't enter the Kingdom of Heaven by simply attending church. That attending church is good, but that's not how you enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't enter the kingdom of heaven by doing good works and adding up the list of all the good things that you've done in your life. You don't enter the kingdom of heaven because you know a few Bible stories or you know about Jesus. You enter the kingdom of heaven because you know Jesus intimately, personally for yourself. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, apparently, being Jesus is Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, but the one who does the will of my Father. You see, the Lordship of Jesus must translate into a lifestyle of following Jesus. 
And one of the age-old questions that we often are asked or we ask ourselves is, what is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? What's God's will for my life? Everywhere I go, when I travel and preach around the world, someone will come up and ask me, what's God's will for my life? Like I'm gonna wave a magic wand over their life and I'm gonna give them a prophetic word and they're going to work out what God's will is for their life. And often when we ask that question or we think about the will of God, it's very mystical. And what we actually are looking for is the specific details of maybe where we should live, what job we should do, who we should marry, what we should do with our lives in terms of work, etc., etc. And yet the Bible has already revealed to us what the will of God is. And that is that we would be reconciled back into right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that the will of God is our sanctification. That's a word that actually means to become like Christ. That the will of God is more concerned with your character than your achievements. With who you're becoming than in what you do. And I've discovered that if you prioritise that will about who you're becoming and your character and your own walk with God, the uh, unknown will of God, the specifics of that will be revealed to you in the times and seasons that God has for you because you've got your focus where it needs to be. How about in 2021, we focus less on the specific will of God for the details of our life and focus more on what the Bible reveals to us is the will of God for our lives. And I've discovered something. If you seek first the Kingdom of God, He'll add all these other things to you as you get things into right priority. You see, to be sanctified, to be born again, actually requires a total separation from sin. Without being born again, the Bible says, and we heard it during the baptisms today, we're still dead in our sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.1 says this, You were dead in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. There's a whole lot of people on planet Earth that are like walking dead people or they're alive in the flesh. They're alive in the natural. They have amazing personalities, life filled with colour and yet their spirits are still dead in iniquity and sin. And this is why we need to be born of the Spirit, born again so that our spirit can come back to life. Now, you might not think of yourself as a sinner. It's not a very positive positive thing to think about. You might not think of yourself as a thief or a liar. You may never have lied or murdered or, or, or committed adultery. And yet Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have missed the mark. In fact, King David in Psalm 51.5, after he had committed murder and adultery, he acknowledges the iniquity and sin in which he was born into. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, marks of the fall, when we talk about Uh, the fall of the human race. We're talking about Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and that seed of sin that was in them was now perpetuated through the bloodline of humanity. The marks of the fall, the marks of sin can be seen pretty early in a child's life. Uh, Particularly when they turn about two, all kids become terrorists and parents become very afraid of their children uh, because you don't need to teach a kid to say no 
Have you discovered that they pretty much have that inbuilt, inherent within them? Uh, you need to teach kids to share because self-centeredness is in the heart of a child. You need to teach a child not to be greedy and you need to teach a child to stop biting. Unfortunately, my now 14-year-old, when he was in the twos and threes, just decided to welcome people with an uncomfortable bite. And so, you know, it's like, wow, uh, where did he learn that? From his mother. And so we need to actually, you know, uh, uh, bring correction and disciple this kid to actually understand this is not socially acceptable. So come out in Jesus' Name. And, and so you, you've got to take a child on a journey of helping them understand what is acceptable and what isn't. And it's because they are born in sin. Every single one of us is, has that mark of fallenness upon our life. Iniquity means to be not just or out of right standing with God. Iniquity or sin comes through the bloodline of humanity, but salvation comes through the bloodline of Jesus Christ. We were born into sin through our parents, but we're born again through salvation of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1.3, according to His great mercy, not according to my or your great works, according to His great mercy and grace, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So spiritual birth is the doorway into the kingdom. But in order to be born again, you need to understand repentance. Repentance is the non-negotiable prerequisite to receiving the kingdom of God. We know that because Jesus declared in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, if you're going to access the kingdom, if you're going to receive the kingdom, if the kingdom of heaven is now going to become your value system, the way that you approach life, it requires repentance. Repentance is a concept, an idea, a practice that is not often talked about in church life because no one wants to ever hear or acknowledge that there could be something dysfunctional in their heart or in their life that they actually need to be corrected with or repented of. And so we don't tend to talk about it because we want to keep the customers in the church and we don't wanna see people go. But can I tell you, repentance is a key for you to walk in freedom in your life. Repentance isn't a bad word. It's not a dirty word. It's a good idea. It's a good word because it actually helps you be free of things that the enemy wants to enslave you with. What is repentance? Repentance is more than remorse. It's more than feeling shame or guilt because you've said something wrong, done something wrong, thought something wrong. Repentance is actually a 180 degree turning away from yourself as Lord of your life to Jesus as Lord of your life. It's turning away from you being the master of your own universe to acknowledging that I am poor in spirit. 
I need a Saviour and I need His Spirit to empower me, to help me, to live the life that God has called me to live because God designed me. He knows what's best for me. And so if I keep on living willfully according to my ideas, my heart and what I feel and the world perpetuates this idea by saying, just follow your heart. It's the worst bit of advice you could ever follow because the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 20, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The prophet answers, only the Lord can understand it. He searches the heart. He searches the mind. So if I can't even understand my own heart, why am I gonna waste time trying to follow my own heart? I'm gonna follow Jesus. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you're born into sin and you follow your heart, that doesn't make any sense to keep perpetuating that and living in slavery. What you've gotta do is have an interruption. Talk about a disruption of 2020. You need the disruption of the Kingdom of Heaven in your life and in your heart to interrupt the trajectory of darkness that you encounter in your life so that the kingdom of light can now become your new reality. That is not going to become your reality apart from repentance. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way. And so to repent wholeheartedly is to acknowledge I am not king, Jesus is king. I am not the final authority of my life. Jesus is the final authority and I need to open up my entire heart to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This came home for me many, many years ago when I was in year 10 and ran on the track team, we would work out in the gym at Parade College at the school there twice a week in the morning before school. And so I started to cover the weights. Other people covered Ferraris, I was coveting the dumbbell set. And so I covered the weights. And so I decided that these weights would look really good in my garage at home. And so if you were a school teacher at Parade, looking back across the ovals of the school, you would have seen before school a student, full uniform, dragging 80 kilos of weights across the oval. And just they somehow miraculously ended up in my garage. Now, we don't know who that student was because there was no CCTV footage, nor was there social media to actually film the crime and offence. But all I know is for the next several months, I worked out amazingly with that workout equipment. Many years passed, I forgot about it. Those weights were gathering dust. In fact, 10 years later, I am now a youth and young adult pastor at my church. I'm preaching the Gospel. I'm getting ready to go on a tour around Australia, preaching at camps and conferences and churches. And I'm in my prayer closet in one day and I'm praying for the Spirit of God to anoint me with signs, wonders, fireballs of power and that God would come and move amazingly in people's hearts. And as I'm desperately, intentionally interceding that God would use me, the Holy Spirit, how dare He interrupted my prayer time. And He said, take back the weights. And I'm thinking to myself, take back the weights. That's an unusual word. I've never had that word before. I know there's a passage that says, lay aside the weights and the sin which easily entangles you. Yes, I'm gonna lay aside the weights and the sin which easily, whatever weights are upon my life. And he interrupts again and says, take back the weights. And as soon as he said it, a light bulb appeared and I literally saw this screen in front of me of a student in full uniform dragging 80 kilos of weights across the back oval with my face. And I realised whilst no one else saw, 
Jesus saw because He always sees and be sure your sin will find you out. And so He's like, take back the weights. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm like a man of God now. And this is embarrassing. What am I gonna say to the receptionist? I live so far away. Isn't it funny how you begin to rationalise and justify your behaviour of the past and why you can't do something now because of what you did in the past. And yet there was no negotiation. The Holy Spirit is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so I had a decision to make who is Lord in this moment and I practised repentance. So I loaded the car up with the weights. I drove rather sheepishly to the school and we hit the car park and it was deja vu, dragging 80 kilos of weights back across the car park. Now I'm a grown man. I went and explained myself, was met with amazing grace from the receptionist who had a bit of a giggle and a laugh and I walked out feeling amazingly lighter and for the next six weeks, I did see more signs and wonders, more miracles, more outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the doorway to a manifestation of the power of the kingdom required repentance. You see, repentance is not just about who is Lord of your life. Repentance is about you walking in freedom from sin. The world's idea of freedom, according to the Bible, is actually slavery to sin. God's idea of freedom is repentance from sin. And my experience in pastoring and ministering and leading people, particularly believers who experience habitual sin in their life, most problems with uh, addictions and strongholds and habitual sin comes back to a simple truth that there is a lack of true repentance. There is a lack of turning away. And one of the symptoms or reason why we don't sometimes practice true repentance is because we actually cherish the sin and the feelings connected to the sin, then we cherish our affection and worship of God. And this is what the Bible describes as regarding iniquity or sin in the heart. We actually cherish the sin and regard it in our hearts more than we regard our affection and love and worship of Jesus. And so the Bible says, He who knows the good that he should do and doesn't do it, for him it is sin. If there is something that God has put upon your heart, can I encourage you, practice repentance. Turn away from life on your terms. Turn away from you being the Lord of your life and turn towards Jesus. Why? Because it's not just about Lordship, it's about you walking in true freedom and those who know the truth shall truly be free in Jesus' Name. You see, true repentance is not just a mental acknowledgement. I've done something wrong. True repentance is accompanied by transformation of thinking, of words, of actions, of relationships. That's why the Apostle Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The greatest place of transformation after you get born again and saved is in your thinking. And in the program centre of your mind and of your heart, you now begin to think like someone who belongs to the Kingdom of God. 
And as you exchange your thinking from the pattern of this world to the pattern of the kingdom, then out of your mouth comes kingdom language, kingdom declaration. Out of the fruit of your actions and behaviour comes the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. And if we are called to advance God's kingdom across the nations and bring transformation into the world around us, how can you transform something you are conformed to? You have to actually experience the work of transformation in your heart to bring transformation in the world. And so you've got to understand that as King, Jesus Christ works by His Spirit to transform you to reflect His character in the world. God is more interested in who you are becoming in this kingdom than in what you are achieving for His kingdom. And He intends the kingdom within you to actually manifest through you to the world around you. The Bible likens you and I to salt. Salt is not just a preservative influence in food. Salt actually brings flavour and taste. You and I as kingdom carriers are not just here to preserve kingdom values in our culture. We're actually supposed to live in such a way that when the world tastes of us, they taste and see that God is good. We add flavour to the world. We're tasty to the palate of the world, not the kingdom of the world, but the true need and brokenness and heart response of the world. The same people that were repelled by the pride of the Pharisees were attracted to the kingdom of God within Jesus. And that's what we are called to. That's what we're called to as a church. That's what we're called to as individuals. The pathway to the kingdom begins in humility, a recognition that I am poor in spirit, that I need His help. And out of that poverty of spirit, would you make me new? Would you make me a new creation? I wanna be born again, born anew. And I know that the doorway into the kingdom is repentance. It's having my mind and my heart awakened to the reality of who Jesus is. I turn away from myself and I turn to Him. That's what the kingdom of God is drawn to. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.